Joseph was my older brother, and uh, there was 13 years between us, so you couldn't say we had a lot in common. When I was growing up, like, he was going to the pub when I was playing cowboys, that kind of a thing. So we never really got on brilliantly. We weren't really close as siblings are. And um, he died in April 1983. It was Easter Sunday, 3rd of April. And uh, we, myself, my mum and dad were inside watching telly. And he was upstairs and he just popped his head into the sitting room and said he was going for a walk and he just never came back. Grey, grey shades, shades, cold day, cold stone. But you say, nay, cold steel, wearisome. Dark grey each day, etc., etc. Down, grey, away. Steel grey. Blue, paint, blue. Blue grey, stone grey each day or light grey, etc. Final day, passing to clay. I probably looked quite rough, dishevelled, and it's sort of a hangover from the... uh, 60s and uh, happy times and love and peace, stuff like that. That was the angle we would have been imagining ourselves to fit into. That would have been from, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16 kind of times, you know, borrowing other people's bigger coats and bigger jumpers and bigger everything, you know, it was all... Yeah, we would have been much more aware of, of all of that and growing up. I mean, we would have been into rock music and whatever was going at that time. I think Leonard Skinner was the big thing at that time. And if you didn't know your rock bands, you, were, you weren't, uh, as I talk about now, you weren't cool. We did very simple things. I mean, we used to go for go for walks and spend spend all night discussing some debate or other, you know, whatever it was. And we could sit out all night, stand out all night, just talking was a big thing, you know. But and we lived at the edge of a rural area, and it was beautiful. Hilly, small, hilly, enclosed. To me, I think a very a beautiful, like patchwork landscape. And summertime was went on forever. I mean, we could. Summertime was like. Uh, I'm reminded of I'm talking about as happy as a sandboy. Well, I'm 
no aspiration to be at anything or no deadlines. No. It was just being and it was good. Whenever the hunger strikes emerged, I think for a lot of people, it was a huge awakening. The idea that, that, um, that anybody could sacrifice their own life in such a passive way for somebody else, for an ideal, for, for anything began to ask, force people to examine the whole question again and say, well, what's this all about? This surely can't be about uh, just mindless people perpetrating random acts of violence or mindless violence or people in some way totally obsessed with nothing else than the, the, the violence itself. Republican funerals have always drawn a crowd here in West Belfast, but never a crowd quite like this. Quite simply, this is one of the biggest political funerals in the history of Ireland. And here today, a whole community, it seems, has turned out in an obvious, overwhelming show of solidarity for the hunger strikers and the late Bobby Sands. Everyone imagined that the hunger strike would, would achieve and the marches and, the, and the, the political protests and the street protests. We all believed that we could stop the deaths of the hunger strikers. It's a very emotional time. It was done purely on that emotional basis, I think. But our, our protests were totally inadequate. Brought me to a realisation that the powers that, that be in the north, the British government, were totally uninterested in listening to civil protest. They were totally committed to a violent approach to the whole situation. To maintaining the status quo, which I saw as an unjust status quo, and come to a very sad realization that the only way to change that would be not to ignore it or not to sit down passively in front of that violence, but in some way to challenge it. And the only practical way of challenging that violence, I thought, was through 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 armed struggle. Through, that's what I would have called it that same, but I thought through being involved in, in Republican politics. And therefore I did, I became involved in Republican politics at that, at that age. I think it's, it's a terrible admission to make. I mean, to, it was almost like the death, of, the death of naivety, death of childhood in ways, or that adolescence, that I realised that um, not everybody shared the hope and the ambition and the almost um, childish belief that anything was possible if we believed hard enough in it and that, that we lived in a world, the world that was basically violent and, and that the, the terrible things happened with it and that I was part of that world. I think that was a very, very, very sad time from that point of view.
I was 17 at the time of my arrest. It would have been January 1982. Uh, no, it, 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 some critics have, 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 have would have would have would have termed me uh, angry or whatever, and, and I mean it's fair enough. I, I would be. Um, but the reason for making the work, it will begin with being angry. I mean, there's plenty to be angry about. Usually the feelings of, uh, that are associated with happiness and, and, and feeling very good are not the ones that return to uh, upset you. You have to actually call them back. Whereas the other ones, the ones of anger, resentment, bitterness or, or rage uh, or hurt, they come on their own, uninvited, and they usually stay much longer. It was the 25th of May 1990, that was the year I was um, captured in South Hill, Limerick, with a large arsenal of ammunition, weapons and explosives. And I was remanded in custody to Port Leash Prison and two months later I received ten years. I was driving a van and I had a colleague with me and we were more or less, I won't say ambushed, but uh, we were taken by surprise, definitely, by the emergency response unit from Dublin. The surprise was actually in seeing him, you know, but I wasn't, like, shocked in the sense that I was numbed or anything, you know, but I, I remember being perfectly calm at the time and just said to myself, oh, God, this is it. You know, I'm going down. And that's exactly what happened. I did go down. But I knew from the word go I was going away for a long while, you know. And um goes with the territory, as they say, you know. taken down to cells and then we were taken off in convoy. That Later that evening we were taken off in convoy down to Port Leash in, um, through the hills and screams of the sirens and stuff. And uh, while Dublin City looked on and probably imagined you know, what kind of monsters inside this van. I remember thinking, gee, this is, is this all for me, you know? If you imagine Port Leash is uh, just a honeycomb of razor wire, gates, a labyrinth of banging and closing, locking and unlocking. Within a very short distance, you'd encounter 10, 11 gates and people on security posts. I mean, without trying to make the analogy or comparison, it was very reminiscent of... Uh, of some kind of a security camp you would have seen in the Second World War movie, you know. And we arrived into the prison about 11 o'clock at night, and I remember... I remember it was very, very quiet. You could hear a pin drop. And we were going down the hall in the landing, and I could see all these rows of doors, you know. But there wasn't a sound, do you know? 
I was like, Jesus, what's this place like at all, you know what I mean? And I had visions of myself being like Rudolf Hess or something, you know what I mean? Because I didn't know how many people were in there or anything like that. And I didn't really know what to expect. And like there was something like 14 gates, you had to go through all airlocks, if you will. You know what I mean? You can't get through one gate until another one's locked behind you. This kind of a way. And I remember thinking to myself, genie, this place is made, you know? And then he gets in there, then and the screw handed me a plastic jug and a plastic knife and fork. And my my reaction to the plastic knife and fork was, oh my God, they must be mad in here, you know? But little did I think that that's the way the staff viewed me, do you know what I mean? I don't mean me personally, or me as an individual, but me as a prisoner. The plastic fork and knife wasn't for my protection, do you know what I mean? It was for theirs. I'd, n- I'd never been in a prison before. I'd never given thought to prison. I'd known prisoners, I'd known one or two men who'd, who'd been in jail, uh, socially in Bray. Um, but I'd never, ever thought about it. Never gave it any thought. Which surprised me because, you know, I haven't been out with them for the last 12 years now. And, and um, at that time, when I first went in, I, it was not some place that I'd given any thought to at all. Didn't even know where Mount Joy Jail was. The OC came down to meet me from the, the, the prisoner's representative. Officer Commander came down to meet me. And uh, I'd been told to wait for the OC, you know. And I imagined the OC is going to be some twenty-year-old guy in a in a handlebar moustache and uh, very straight and with a swagger stick or something, you know. <laughs> but uh, the OC t- transpired that he was a a man about forty-five with with um, national health glasses and uh, a cardigan and his hand stuck in the cardigan and patches on the sleeves and. Uh, almost like somebody who'd been living there for all of his life, and I was thinking, oh, <laughs> an academic or something, you know? I mean, I'd imagine the jails to be very regimented, strict places, and it was. I mean, we're very, it was very closed in, and the security was f- deadly tight. But within the landings, you had uh, very domestic-looking things, like uh, people with little bits of string across their cell with their socks hanging up to dry, and... It, lots of books everywhere, and uh, people, for instance, one guy making jelly in a in a washing basin and stuff like this, you know. And so it just looked like people had recycled this whole system into a, a domesticana, if you like, you know. In Ewing, every prisoner had a cell each. And your cell was 10 feet by 6 feet. And you did spend a lot of time on your own. It was roughly around 15 hours a day, 14 and a half, I think it was, to be exact. Uh, So that gave you a lot of time on your own. And I used to fill my time by writing letters, you know, to friends and what have you and family. And I'd also listen to music, you know. And I studied...
I suppose, speaking for myself more than anyone else, when, when, when you're on your own like that, you do tend to examine yourself a lot in, in, in psychological and emotional sense, you know? And you end up battling with various negative uh, emotions and uh, I suppose self-pity would be an element as well, you know, and and rage and frustration and all those things that everyday people feel, you know. But at times they can hit you simultaneously, you know. So uh, envy in the sense that you envy the people who are getting on with their lives and who are happy and getting on with things on the outside, whereas what that's what you'd like to do, you know, there's no way you're going to be doing it, you know, so you're probably envious of people in that sense, you know. Like, I remember um, often looking out the top windows and you could see the traffic passing on the main road, the main Dublin road, and at night time in particular, you'd see the headlights and what have you, and you might be listening to radio too, and, you'd, and I used to say to myself, well, they're listening to the radio too, I wonder, are they listening to radio too, and like they're going home to their various homes and what have you and things like that, you know. Anybody out there?
comfortably numb. We lived as a like, an, a like a little government on our own. We had our own power structures. We had our own um, OCs. We had our own delegates to representatives who talked and dealt with the prison authorities. Um, originally, when I was in Port Leash, there was no education system. The feeling, I think, was that these people, if they have any contact with anybody, will use it to their advantage and may um, implicate them in escape. Now... I haven't said that, although there was nothing from outside, what we did, we created a whole, a whole education system of our own. Many of us hadn't got much formal education. So we set about, and had been, since there'd ever been Republican prisoners there, they'd been educating each other. Well, uh, we ended up in Port Leash, I suppose, basically because of Maeve Ruan. Maeve Ruan is, um, at that time, Maeve Ruan was the Visual Arts Officer of the Arts Council. But she contacted... Three of us, Mikko D, myself, and I think Pauline Cummins, yeah, in response to a request from the Department of Justice to look at the possibility of putting an artist in prison scheme, which would be like the writers in prison scheme. The writers in prison scheme had been very effective. So the three of us were contacted, we were briefed, given three prisons, and told go to work with them and come back and report. Mine was Port Leash. And that's how I, I ended up there. So uh, I got the long-term prisoners and I got the political prisoners. And I, I didn't take part. I'd never imagined that I would be interested in art as such. I never thought that I would have any ability to be involved in art because at school I couldn't draw. I couldn't rule the page properly. So I thought, oh, you know, I have no hands for this. I couldn't possibly do that. I thought about it's, it was uh, based on skill and stuff. Never lift a paintbrush or do anything about it. People had been going to this art class. I'd heard that there was a guy involved in an art class who was unconventional, probably, and who wasn't academic in a, in a traditional sense and wasn't interested in how straight you could draw a line. I would have been passing his workshop, whatever workshop it was, at that time, and I looked in, and your mum was there, and... I probably said something cheeky to him about this art, you know. And then after that, I went down the next day. Well, it, it gauged his response, and his response wasn't hostile in any case. and wasn't. He was open. This one particular day, I took a walk down to the art studio, and I got into the habit of going into the art studio because it was a nice, quiet place, and there weren't many people in there. And it was a place you could sit down and smoke a cigarette, have a cup of coffee, and just gather your thoughts, you know, that kind of a way. And it's, it's, it's funny, really, when you think that you're locked up for so many hours on your own that you'd want a place where you could have a little privacy. But you would at times, you know, where there's, there isn't people around. So I got into the habit anyway of going down to this 
art room and I didn't like do any art or anything. I just like sat down there listening to the radio and that. And this one day I walked in anyway and I seen this thin, disheveled figure in the corner. And uh, I looked at him and I went, ooh, he must be doing a long time, you know. And I was over chatting to him anyway and I thought, oh God, this poor guy isn't going to survive whatever he's doing, whatever stretch he's doing, you know. And it turned out to be Brian Maguire, <laughs> the art tutor. Paints weren't allowed out of where they were because the paints had to be counted in and counted out and checked. And yeah, I don't know what they thought. I think they thought that we would paint a, a bird and fly out on it, you know. But there was a paranoia about the paint. The paint was a, a security problem, um, as everything was. But So we had to paint within the confines. So we could use pencil outside within your own cell. And I made a piece inside in the art room and the lads gave me a right ribbon over it. They thought I was off my game. And I took it down again and put it away and the tutors came back after the summer holidays to start another year of classes. And it was Etna Carr who spotted it in the corner and she said, what's this, you know, what's, what are all these pieces of mirror and stuff doing around? And I said, oh, that's just something I was messing with. I, I put an old thing together, you know. And she said, uh, well, why don't you put it together again, you know, for us? I said, OK. You know what I mean? So they went off anyway, and the following week they came back, and in the meantime I put this thing together, and they seemed impressed with it, and I couldn't understand why, you know, because to me it didn't look like a whole pile at all, you know. Uh, but I did explain what I was trying to do, like, and there was a religious theme in, in the piece itself, and I was going on about the Holy Trinity, you know. It was from that then that they encouraged me in the installation work, you know. I would have been doing rough expressionist work, which probably reflects well enough my own personality, and through other and messy, and uh, I think life is like that. I think it's full of... Uh, it's not made up of clear lines, and uh, I had to spend weeks and weeks trying to create a portrait of a friend or whatever, somebody who we're having a series of conversations. So the, we'd have these endless conversations and I would paint them and repaint them and paint them again and it was like very tentative, inch by inch. I thought in some ways if I spent long enough with the people that I'd express or come to some kind of understanding of both their personality and my personality and try to represent that through the kind of paint and the quality of paint and stuff like that. I had this one particular idea that I wanted to do involving bed sheets, you see? And I wanted to work with the bed sheets because they were single sheets anyway, number one. So that to me was celibacy, you know, a single bed, you know? And I remember that at the time getting these sheets and I got about five or six sheets, you know, because if I didn't get it right, like, I was going to go at it again, you know, that kind of way. But there was one or two of them, and they were badly stained, you know. And McGuire wanted me to show these ones, you know what I mean? Yeah, you know, these this, these are the sheets you should show. And I said, no way, man, you know what I mean? But, um... That's really all that I use. They look like oil paintings, but in fact they're not.
I remember at the very beginning, I, 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 I was I was quite um, astounded by. Uh, I was working with men who were, who were being sentenced for the murder of policemen, and they were, you know, they might have been ten years in jail at this stage. But the idea of them spending another thirty three years in the small cells. It was emotionally disturbing to deal with that. There were points in which the presence of the people remained with me when I left the jail. It, it was easy to cut out certain stuff when I was going in. For instance, there's no question at all of ever being judgmental. You know, if you begin doing that, you've no place in the business. But when you leave, your, your, your gleeful freedom of movement in and out of this system... Is, is, is questionable. You know, I, I found it hard to shed the, the place. And, and as a result, it came home with me. It, at the beginning, I, I could do very little in, in the days after going down. Then after I couldn't work for about three months, eventually I began to, to make work. Ah, the colour became grey. Uh, became the 40 shades of grey was the, the story. consisted of four pieces of text and a photograph, a coat and a pair of shoes. And the issue obviously was suicide. And I was approaching it from the point of view, that's why I titled it Legacy, was because I felt that I was talking about my brother's legacy, what he left me. Now, and what he left me was, I suppose, emotional baggage, a lot of thinking, you know? If it was like that, if you lived in a place as morose as Brian's painting was, or uh, if you lived in a mindset as morose as Brian's paintings were, it would be impossible to survive. I mean, you had... There would be no possibility for survival. You'd be in the depths of depression. So, um, I mean, yeah, he painted colour, painted loads of colour, as colourful as anyone's personality should be. And that, that was the truth. That's how he felt about it. I certainly didn't feel I was entranced. There was potential... I didn't want to be there, but every day was a potential for something else. I ended up having to start to emigrate temporarily. <laughs> I, I ended up going to America to get away from the place. And, and to, in Montana, there's a big sky that goes on forever. It's called the big sky. It all became very bright again. It all became bright and all the bright colours came back to me, which I'd used in the 70s. 1994, the ceasefire came in. Along with the ceasefire came a tremendous era of optimism and people were looking forward to the future. And But, of course, along with the ceasefire came lots of rumours about releases and changes in conditions and things like that, you know. And it was suggested to me and some other people that, not by the prison authorities, but by the tutors, that maybe we should apply for college, for the National College of Art and Sign on the off chance that we might be released. Yeah. 
I came out of prison in August, in the August, I think it was, and two weeks later I was inside the National College of Art and Design walking around, going to life drawing classes and um, sketching models and things, going into sculpture, working with clay, and I loved going around the college looking at the different departments, glass, ceramics. That for me was just totally opposite to what I had before I went away. No, I don't believe that the art world was a defining influence. I'm sorry, and that's the truth about it. Uh, it was something else. For most people, as soon as they went back to their own lives, it was dropped. Uh, it didn't exist outside of the rarefied world of Portlaoise. When I left Portlaoise, I was a Republican again and got involved in Republican politics. I had been offered to go back to college at that time. I had a place in college and I didn't use it. I didn't see how it would possibly fit into my world that was in crisis. I like to think that we were helpful. You, you never really know for sure. Certainly for me, something changed. I developed a whole range of relationships with people, some of whom I've become very close to. That's something that doesn't often happen in, in colleges. I found that there was an intensity to the experience and, and I'm richer by far from doing it, without any doubt. Right, we're out of here. Thanks. I just met John when I went back to college. And when I met him, he was a big, gregarious character, you know. And I was in the college a couple of days and I went... I walked into the loo and I heard this guy talking, you know. From his accent and, and from the look of him, I just said, I bet you that's Colum Lina. And I just turned around and said, you Colum Lina? He said, yeah, you John Carmody? I said, yeah. And he said, in this big, strong voice, low buddy. And the two of us went out to the clock for a beer. <laughs> and uh, we sat down and chatted to each other and we just became friends after that. We... we we became friends almost instantly. He's, um, he's full of jokes and stuff, so, and quite a sad person behind it all. crawled out. You see there's wire running here and there's wire running back. Every, everywhere in prison you're in a cage and, and your man used to crawl out and stand spread-eagled like he was standing like an angel in space. Actual visiting conditions is an imaginative uh, couple making love within a cell. I mean, it's, it's, it's fairly obvious, very brutally obvious. I couldn't say it was the story of a butterfly because it wasn't like it was... Um, the change, I found it hard. 
and I found it hard to deal with, you know. You see, I, di- I didn't really understand what was expected of me in the college sense. In terms of producing work, I would say I was more productive in prison. Again, I suppose there's an element that would say, well, I didn't have so many distractions, you know. And I certainly had a lot of distractions when I was back in society. And I remember when I first was released, I used to get my dual on a Tuesday. And Tuesday evening, I'd be in the clock. And most of my dual had begun by the following day. I think myself that um, I should have given myself some space and time before I went into college. And two weeks certainly isn't long enough. And that's Maria, it's ruined. What she's not about. What she's saying about me, Paul, you about me. Talk here about me behind well, my back. I often talk about you, but there are always nice things to read. There are artists who work in, in Dublin, who work as community artists, who are involved in social activities and working with their communities. I don't want to sound as though it's kind of do good or thing, but a friend of mine who works with the drug teams here in the city and works with kids who are who are marginalised. And I think that's some commendable work. I'd like to be able to do something like that in my own community. I found that I had to take a break from college to come back to Limerick because my mother got ill. And now I'm back here. And I'm working now. So I got a, a job in a factory and I'm doing assembly line work. And I'm enjoying myself out there. I'm with a good bunch of people. We have a good crack. And I'm earning a wage, and I'm happy to be earning a wage. I find that I'm getting up early in the morning, and I'm sleeping at night, which is a thing I rarely do, in the sense that when I wasn't working, I'd stay up half the night watching TV. Now I get to bed at a reasonable hour. And I find that uh, overall it does add to your well-being and it does boost you. I haven't been getting down to art or doing anything in particular in art lately. And I don't know when I'm going to go back to it, but I'm definitely going to go back to it. And at the moment, I feel that I'm just getting by with my life and I'm establishing myself in a practical sense, you know? And I think once I have that done, that I'll be in a position to turn my attentions to art. I, I don't see myself working in this field for much longer. I think there's a length of time that one can work in this field and, and then it's necessary to move out and, and to let others in. Am I sad to be leaving it? Yeah, um, you know, I was, I was down there a few days ago and uh, you, one would always like to stay and go, you know. <laughs> I was mixed feelings, but I felt that my time had come to an end, without doubt. I don't see art as being the all-important truth, but it is an opportunity to voice your opinion in a society that is mainly mute. You know, very few people get the opportunity to say anything these days. You know what I mean? It doesn't have to be visual arts, you know? It could be music, it could be dance, it could be literature... But I think the most important thing is to be able to express yourself and to be honest in that expression, not to be glib or ambiguous or afraid, you know.
mostly I, I think of the work. When, when I think of the prison, I think of the, the actual work that was made. I mean, there were times that were, were very, very exciting and, and delightful. I remember very hard men being experiencing embarrassment at winning a prize. I remember a man who was showing acute embarrassment when he was handed the prize he won. I think it was in Arnott's he won the prize. I remember being very touched by that emotion in the, in the prison. It's not one that you commonly see. That, to me, is what it was about. It was about those, the actual real-time experiences, uh, rather than um, any statistical results or whatever, you know.